Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. This week's episode of History of Ideas, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, is about Robert Nozick's Anarchy, State and Utopia, one of the favourite books of the tech billionaires in Silicon Valley. What is it about this libertarian call to arms from the 1970s that still resonates today? I want to begin this time by reading out a list of names. And the question about this list is, what do all these people have in common? You'll have to bear with me because it's quite a long list. You may lose the will to live. It does end eventually. And the payoff comes at the end as well. So here's the list. What do these people have in common? Wittgenstein, Elizabeth Taylor, Bertrand Russell, Thomas Merton, Yogi Berra, Allen Ginsberg, Harry Wilson. Thoreau, Casey Stengel, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Picasso, Moses, Einstein, Hugh Hefner, Socrates, Henry Ford, Lenny Bruce, Baba Ram Das, Gandhi, Sir Edmund Hillary, Raymond Lubitz, Buddha, Frank Sinatra, Columbus, Freud, Norman Mailer, Ayn Rand, Baron Rothschild, Ted Williams, Thomas Edison, H. L. Mencken, Thomas Jefferson, Ralph Ellison, Bobby Fisher, Emma Goldman, Peter Kropotkin, you, your parents. That's the end of the list. We got there. So what do all these people have in common? The list comes from the book I'm talking about today, Robert Nozick's Anarchy, State and Utopia. And it's a book published in 1974. It's quite a 1970s list. The first thing I think that stands out about all those people is they're almost all men. There are very few women on that list. There are Elizabeth Taylors at the top, Ayn Rand, Emma Goldman. There are quite a few baseball players on that list. That's slightly odd. But what do they have in common? The answer, of course, is nothing. Those people do not have anything in common. They're just famous names. And the point of the list is to suggest just how ridiculous it would be to try and conceive of a society, a political arrangement, a conception of justice, a way of ordering the good life, even an idea of what it would be to lead a good life, that would work for all of those different people, given just how different they all are, even though they're almost all men. Imagine trying to construct a society for that group. And the payoff is at the end, because even if you leave out all the others, what Nozick is saying, just try and imagine a society that works for you, and your parents. This is a 1970s book, an era like now, where there was quite an acute generational divide, particularly in thinking about politics. And a lot of people, then as now, would struggle to conceive of a society whose conception of justice and the good suited their parents and suited them. And what Nozick is doing here is essentially pushing back against philosophers like John Rawls. John Rawls was Nozick's colleague. They worked together at Harvard. Both of them spent almost all their careers at Harvard. They knew each other. And Anarchy, State and Utopia is in part a book against rules, published three years after A Theory of Justice, and rejecting many of Rawls's assumptions about politics and how to think about a good society. It's partly a rebuke against rules because it is pushing back against the idea of the veil of ignorance. After all, the point of this list is to suggest 
it's ridiculous not to tell people who they are and ask them to come up with a theory of justice just based on their knowledge of how society works, because they could be any of these people. It really matters whether you're Wittgenstein or Elizabeth Taylor, whether you're Buddha or Frank Sinatra. But more broadly, it's pushing back against the notion that there can be an answer to the question, what is justice, the first question for rules of politics, that would satisfy a list like this. And this list, though it is diverse, is also, Nozick implies, just a list of people. This is the diversity of the human experience. You can't answer Rawls's question for these people. And if you can't, you can't answer it for people. Yet what's odd about this list, in a way, is that it comes in the third part of Nozick's book. And the third part is not the anti-Rawls part. The book is called Anarchy, State and Utopia. Part three is the utopian bit, thinking about the best possible society. That's where this list comes, trying to think about what would be the best possible society for all these people. No, you can't answer the question, what is justice, to satisfy them. But you can, surely, Nozick is implying, think about nonetheless, what would be the best way to do it. And I'll come back to that. The anti-rules bit of the book, explicitly, is the second part, state, where Nozick pushes back hard against the idea of the redistributive, welfareist state that rules championed, the maximin state, the one that looks after the worst off in society and focuses on them and their well-being in the name of justice and fairness. The book begins with the anarchy section, and that's probably still what it's best known for. And the anarchy section, and that's where I'll start and then work my way back to the list that includes Elizabeth Taylor and Buddha. The anarchy section tries to answer a question which is very different from Rawls's question and I think has more in common with where I started this series, the why questions and not the what questions. When talking about anarchy, Nozick doesn't want to answer the question, what is the state? He wants to answer what is perhaps a more basic question. Why do we have a state at all? How can we possibly justify it? And it's a question with that kind of point to it, that emphasis for Nozick, because he thinks the default assumption should be it is not justifiable. The default for Nozick is anarchism. It is saying that the state, any state, is illegitimate because states are monopoly organisations that coerce us, that breach our rights, that interfere with us, that tell us what to do, that restrict us, that jail us, that punish us, that tax us. Why the hell would we agree to any of that, given that we are creatures with rights? We are people with bodies and beliefs and ideas and things that we do and things that we own. Why would we allow this impersonal organisation just to trample over all of that? We would have to have, Nozick thinks, a really good answer to the question, why do we allow it? And he thinks too much contemporary political philosophy does not start in the right place. It takes for granted that the state is allowed and then asks the question, what should we do with this state? Knows it wants to know whether we should do anything with this state. And the answer will be nothing if it's not allowed. So how does he construct his argument for the state? Because in the end, Nozick is not an anarchist. In the end, he thinks there is a justification. 
And he does it by drawing on a different tradition from the one that's been the subject of these talks, talking about different authors too. I was flicking through the bibliography of his book, and the person who has the most entries in it, the most works cited, is the 19th century American activist, anarchist, individualist, eccentric, Lysander Spooner, not someone I'm particularly familiar with, not one of the towering names in most canons of political philosophy, but an absolutely central figure in anarchism. Spooner was pretty eccentric. He belongs to that long tradition of Americans who do not like anyone telling anyone what to do. He was pretty politically eclectic. He was an abolitionist. He wanted to get rid of slavery. And at the same time, he didn't believe that the southern states had done anything wrong in seceding from the Union, because no one's allowed to tell anyone else what to do. So there's a bit of spoonerism behind this book. And Nozick did become, having been a youthful socialist, very interested in libertarian, anarchist, and individualist thought. But his two primary sources from the canon, the mainstream canon of political thought, are two authors that I haven't discussed, but could easily be in a canonical series about the history of ideas. One is John Locke, the 17th century English philosopher, and the other is Adam Smith, the 18th century economist and, for some people, originator of the idea of the market economy. Neither of them are radical, eccentric anarchists. Nozick essentially takes one idea from each. What he takes from Locke is the idea of natural rights, that we have rights, rights to our bodies, rights to our opinions, but also, crucially, rights to the things that we make, or to use the Lockean phrase, the things that we mix our labour with. We make things by putting our back into it, and then something exists in the world that didn't exist before, food, art, you name it. And we own those things too. We have rights to them. We have the rights to the products of our hard work. The word we might use now is we have property rights. And as it begins by saying, if we can take this for granted, and he thinks we can, then these are rights that you have to have a very, very good reason to breach. And the only justification can be in terms of rights. Rights can only be breached for the sake of protecting rights. He then uses that as the basis for an argument for the state, but he doesn't do the lock route, which is a kind of contractual arrangement where people trade or barter their rights consciously and knowingly in order to create an association, which we come to call the political state, to give them kinds of protection. He doesn't like the idea that the creation of the state is a conscious or self-conscious act because he doesn't think that's plausible. This is not, certainly not, in the Hobbesian Big Bang tradition, where there's a moment where people realise they have no choice. There's a moment where everyone comes together and agrees to sign away their rights for the sake of an argument that's been sold to them. What he takes from Adam Smith is what he calls an invisible hand explanation. So Adam Smith talked about the market and the workings of society in terms of forces that are invisible that gear towards particular outcomes without anyone consciously willing them. That's how markets work. Markets are not conscious, rational agents. Markets are sites of decision-making where outcomes can be for everyone's benefit or for everyone's harm, but without any one particular person or group of people having intended that outcome and having geared the system to produce it. Nozick wants a market-based invisible hand explanation for the state. We have states, 
not because at one big bang moment we decided to trade away our rights, but we have states because in the defense of our rights, we all behaved in ways that made them, over time, the only option, whether we wanted them or not. How does the invisible hand argument work? Well, it is a market-based argument. So what Nozick conceives, it's a kind of hypothetical conceptual history, is of a state of nature where people simply have their natural rights, in which people trade and barter and arrange how they live in accordance with some basic market principles like the division of labour and the desire to protect what's theirs. And so they band together in what he calls protection associations. That is, they recognise that they are vulnerable, their property in particular is vulnerable, if they don't form groups that are organised to provide forms of collective defence. Some people will be better at some things, including perhaps seeking out wrongdoers, building fences, guarding against intrusions. Maybe some people will be better at meeting out a kind of vigilante justice. In the state of nature, it is natural that people will want to protect what's theirs and they'll want to find the people who they think offer the best protection service and people will trade in those goods and people will advertise those services. And so you will get quite quickly a series of rival protection associations offering this or that, offering to go after the people who stole your food, offering to build you better security, offering to guard you to be there in the middle of the night, and maybe offering other things too, like some kind of basic system of trial or jurisdiction to try and work out who did the offence, to try and maybe be a bit fairer, a bit more equitable, not simply go after innocent people. Maybe one of the services that these associations will offer is actually to follow the evidence. And over time, Nozick says, some of these associations will offer better services than others. And there will be a kind of grouping around the most efficient, the most reliable, and perhaps even the cheapest of them. But you won't just go for the cheapest one. No one who wants to protect their property would only think that what matters is how cheap the protection is. They would think what matters is how effective the protection is. And so, over time, this market would gear towards a dominant protection association. One of these organisations would come out on top because that's how markets work. It wouldn't be a monopoly, but it would be the dominant player. And certain other market forces, though it doesn't quite put it in these terms, would also work here. Network effects, which is the name that we give for when things become sufficiently big that it becomes in everyone's interest to join. We're more familiar with network effects because of the way that social media works. The monopoly forces at work in the age of the internet rely in part on the fact that if everyone is on Facebook, you're better off being on Facebook than on something else. That's how Facebook and Google win. So the Facebook or the Google of protection associations will also say, look, everyone uses our services. We can offer them cheaper. But also, frankly, if you join our club, you'll be in the club that everyone else is in. So you will be better protected. And yet that's not enough, Nozick says, and he's quite clear about this, to count as a state, just to be a dominant protection association, because the state has a particular feature. It is a monopoly. Nozick accepts that basic Weberian definition. The state involves everybody signing up to its rules. And because Nozick has read his Lysander Spooner, he knows that there are some Americans who will never sign up 
and maybe not just Americans, but this is a very North American book. There will always be some people who will take their chances, either with a rival association or with no association at all. There's that kind of Wild West mentality that's at the back of Nozick's thinking. Some people will just say, I'll look after myself, thank you very much. I'm not under any obligation to sign up to your rules. I'm not under any obligation to pay your fees. And I'm not under any obligation to agree to your procedures. I'll protect myself and my family. And for this association to count as a state, somehow those people have to sign up too. So what do you do if you're an anarchist, an individualist, and you believe that you're not allowed to breach people's rights? And there are people totally within their rights who are saying, I don't want to belong. I don't want to join in. Nozick still thinks that the pressure to have them join will be overwhelming, partly because none of the members of the dominant protection association are going to be happy with the thought that in various places, the jurisdiction does not run. And if you are unlucky enough to stray into an encounter with one of these renegades, one of these outlaws, there's nothing you can do. People will expect the protection association to protect them at all times, especially if it's the dominant one. They won't like to think that there are some farms, there are some homesteads, maybe even there are some towns, maybe even there are some counties where the law doesn't run. So the association will be under pressure to bring these people in. But how can it bring them in without breaching their rights? How can it force people to join if they don't want to join? And Nozick has an answer. It's probably too clever by half, but it is an answer. He says if there are people who don't want to join but the association needs them to join in order to provide protection. In breaching their rights, it has to compensate them for their rights. How would it compensate these people? By giving them protection for free. What it could do is say, all right, we accept that you don't have to join. We're going to make you join, which means we've breached your rights, but we're going to make it up to you by not making you pay the fees. And then Nozick says, you have a state. You have something that passes the Weberian definition, though Weber wouldn't recognize it as such. It's far too minimal. It is what Nozick calls a minimal state. It's not ultra-minimal, it's minimal. And it does the things that we expect states to do. It provides that protection. It also charges fees, otherwise known as taxes, and it redistributes. That is, some people will pay, but other people won't pay. They'll get the services for free. There will be redistribution within this state. It's not just a voluntary organisation. What are we meant to make of that argument? People have puzzled over it for a long time since Nozick wrote it, trying to pick holes in it, and there probably are some holes to be picked. That compensation move does look a little bit like a sleight of hand. But what Nozick wants us to take from this is not really that he's come up with a clever way of justifying the existence of states, but that this is the only justification, and therefore states aren't allowed to do anything else. A lot of people have noticed that the protection association, this vigilante version of politics, looks a little bit like the mafia. It looks more like a protection racket. People are banding together, paying people to provide them with protection, and then for the people who won't join in, making them an offer that they can't refuse. And yet, Nozick's point is that this is not a protection racket because there is a way of explaining this kind of state in which everyone who might have a claim against it on the grounds that rights have been breached will get an answer. For Nozick, the protection racket is rules' state. For Nozick, 
the state that goes beyond this state and tries to redistribute and to rectify and make just and make fair, not on the basis of breaches of rights, but an idea of fairness, an ideal of justice, that's the one that's exploiting its power, its monopoly power, to force people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. Nozick's invisible hand explanation is meant to suggest that at no point has anyone been coerced. But when you go beyond the minimal state, he says, that's when the real coercion starts. So taxation to pay for protection and the compensation of the people who wouldn't otherwise choose your association is okay. But taxation for anything else, to look after the poor, to protect the unemployed, to create a welfare state, for maximin principles of the advantage of the least advantaged, that, for Nozick, is the racket, rules his racket. He has lots of things to say in order to try and illustrate that claim, and that clearly, for many of his readers, is the more contentious claim, though the obsession with Dozik often sticks with the first part of the book. The second part is more technical. It's more like a work of political philosophy. It's actually enormously respectful to rules, probably because they worked in the same university. Nozick says that Rawls is a masterful philosopher and his theory of justice has done more than anyone to inspire people to really question their own views and understandings. And All he's doing is offering his own response to a work that he thinks is enormously valuable in its own right. And yet, what he then does is try to take it out at the knees. I'm just going to talk about a couple of the arguments that he has. He has many and he's very good at clever, arresting, unusual, accessible illustrations. So there are two quite well-known illustrations of his thesis that you are not allowed to redistribute for justice or fairness, only for the rectification of past wrongs. One is he asks us to imagine a marriage market. 26 people say, let's letter them A to Z, or A to Z, he would call it. And then 26 other people, possible partners, let's call them A asterisk to Z asterisk. And let's rank them, A, most attractive, most desirable, Z or Z, least attractive, least desirable. Let's assume that they all want to marry. They all think that's part of the good life. And they're free to choose whoever they want. It must at least be possible that they will, in a free market, pair off according to their mutual attractiveness. A will want to be with A star. B, now that A star has been taken out of the market, will go for B star. C for C star. All free choices, all mutually agreed, no coercion, no pressure, no misinformation. Everybody doing what they're entitled to do under conditions of fairness. And that means that at the end, Z will only have one person left, Z star. That's the choice. No one else available to marry. Nozick says it's still a free choice. But Nozick also says it's not unfair. It's still completely fair because nothing unfair has happened. If that's what you're left with, if that's who you are, that's what you get. And he wants us to think that Z is the most disadvantaged and a maxim in principle would require us to think about how we could look after the person at the bottom of the pile. But there's nothing we can do. Are we really going to redistribute attractiveness? Are we going to redistribute good looks or desirability or whatever it is that's causing these people to pair off with each other? Are we going to interfere in this market? Let's not call it in marriage. Let's call it in love. And if we're not, on what basis do we interfere in other markets? 
On what basis do we interfere when other people make choices that result with the people who started with the least having the least choice? There's another example that he has, which has come to be known as the Wilt Chamberlain example. Wilt Chamberlain was, in the 1970s, the most popular, the most watched basketball player. So if it was now, it would be LeBron James at various points. This could be the Michael Jordan example or the Shaquille O'Neal example, but it's the Wilt Chamberlain example. Nozick says to his critics, okay, I'm going to concede to you that you are allowed to construct a society that from your perspective is perfectly just, where everyone has what they should have, where the least advantaged are looked after, the poor are cared for, no one is exploited, no one is suffering. He says, I'm going to give you a utopian fantasy wand and I'm going to let you wave it. Create your perfect society so that it is patterned, that's his word, according to your principles of justice. Come back and tell me when you're happy. Tell me when everything is as it should be. And then I'm going to introduce something into your society, your perfect society. I'm going to introduce Wilt Chamberlain, a basketball player who's better than the others, more fun to watch, more charismatic, more exciting, plying his trade, playing basketball. And it turns out that people will happily pay a dollar, 50 cents, doesn't matter, let's call it a dollar, to watch Wilt Chamberlain play. And actually, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people would happily part with a dollar and maybe more maybe a couple of dollars, maybe five dollars, to watch Wilt Chamberlain pay. No one's being coerced. No one is being tricked. It's open, free exchange. And everybody is better off. The people who see Wilt Chamberlain play are happy. They spend their money gratefully, willingly. And Wilt Chamberlain is better off because he's going to become very rich. If a million people want to pay him five dollars each to watch him play, he's suddenly going to be much, much richer than any of them. And so your perfect pattern society where everyone has what they should is suddenly out of kilter. You've skewed it. Wilt Chamberlain has skewed it. But Nozick says, no one's done anything wrong. He defies his critics to point out in that story where the wrongdoing is. And if there is no wrongdoing, then they have to accept that their perfect pattern society is unsustainable. If something has happened that they cannot complain about, but which wrecks their pattern, then there's something wrong with their pattern. And therefore, Nozick concludes, you cannot pattern a society according to a principle of justice that you will uphold. You have to accept that the best laid plans will be undone by what he called in one context, capitalistic acts between consenting adults. What do we want to make of those two examples? There's lots to be said about them, but I'll keep it brief. The marriage one is interesting because it is a provocation, and certainly it provokes thoughts about where do we draw the line between what can and can't be redistributed. Nozick is assuming that we'll all be pretty squeamish about the idea that you redistribute good looks or attractiveness. The point of the example for him actually is a point about industrial relations in the 1970s and his argument that trade unions have no case when they say that workers who are reduced to taking jobs below a living wage are being exploited. Nozick wants us to think of those workers as like Z or Z in the marriage market. But it's also true as technology advances that people do now start to question whether we should think more about justice and fairness to people who are disadvantaged not just in the economic lottery of life, but the genetic lottery of life. I read an article just a couple of weeks ago in the the Times, the London Times, written by their science editor saying that the great 
disadvantaged, the most discriminated against group are the ugly. When are we going to do something about that? Nozick's provocation is still a provocation. The Wilt Chamberlain example is different because I think that one is a sleight of hand. And the sleight of hand is for Nozick to suggest that this is how capitalism works. People hand over money in exchange for goods and services, and then some people become very rich. The implication being that these transactions are transparent and also direct. We pay Wilt Chamberlain to play basketball. We pay LeBron James to play basketball, but we don't. It goes through so many hands. It is so opaque and obscure. Capitalism is an extraordinarily complex and hard-to-read system of transactions in which it's often bafflingly hard to explain why these people came out with all the money. So it's still true that we can spot that certain sports performers are better than others. And there's a lot of interesting public opinion surveys that suggest that most people are quite relaxed about the thought of the best sports performers earning inordinate sums of money. They almost have bought in to Nozick's Wilt Chamberlain example. They assume that there is some merit at work here. But they don't think that about bankers. They don't think that about fat cats. They don't think that about the vast majority of people who make vast fortunes in a capitalist economy. Because it's not transparent, and it's not obviously based on talent. The people at JP Morgan who are making absurd sums of money, never mind the people in the obscure hedge funds that we don't even know about. Are they the Wilt Chamberlains of the world of finance? Are they just better than everyone else? And is it that we have all willingly handed over our $5 in order to enjoy their services? No. Capitalism doesn't work like that. So this, if this is an argument in defence of capitalist freedom, it's slightly fake. There's another implication of Nozick's argument, which he himself came to take very seriously. It looks like a defence of the minimal state, and therefore there's very little we can do to make right what might look to us like unfairnesses and wrongs, especially because the exclusive focus of Nozick's argument is on past wrongs. The state, the Protection Association, can only intervene when something wrong has already happened. It cannot intervene to anticipate or prevent future wrongs. But as many people have pointed out, there are an awful lot of past wrongs to focus on. One question is, how far are you willing to go back? So if we all have a right to ourselves, our property, the things we've mixed our labour with, the United States of America is simply built on injustice because it was taken from the Native Americans whose land was stolen from them. And even the minimal state, if it's in the business of righting past wrongs, might think that that's a wrong that should be righted. What if the principle at work here is not Rawlsian maximin, not find in a given society who happen to be the least advantaged and work to their advantage, but a kind of historical maximin, that is, find the people who have suffered the greatest historical injustice and work to their advantage. In that case, American politics should be geared around rectifying the wrongs done to Native Americans. And in many ways, that is a more radical politics than the politics of Scandinavian-style soft leftist welfareism that comes out from rules. Nozick could be, in some ways, a more radical political philosopher. And Nozick himself flirted with this idea at various points. He shies away from it a bit in the book itself, but he's aware that taking his argument seriously could seriously mean going all the way back to rectify the biggest wrongs of all. 
And yet that's not the path he takes in the book. The path he takes in the book is from anarchy through state to utopia. So what's the utopian bit? Nozick is very aware that a lot of people are not going to agree with his argument. A lot of people will disagree with that marriage example. They will have different views about what is and isn't fair in love. A lot of people will disagree about his interpretation of his understanding of the transactions that make up a free market or capitalist society. A lot of people will have different priorities when it comes to thinking about what is most damaging, what we should guard against. A lot of people will differ about how far they're willing to go back in rectifying historical injustices. Even in his version of politics, there's going to be an awful lot of disagreement. And he knows that some people are going to remain committed welfareists, redistributors, communists, anarchists. He's not an anarchist, but he knows people who are. Individualists, libertarians. He is a libertarian, but there are more radical libertarians than Robert Nozick. The full spectrum will be covered in any human society because any human society will contain lots of different versions of those people in his list. If you just limit yourself to the women in his list, Elizabeth Taylor, Ayn Rand, Emma Goldman, I don't know what Elizabeth Taylor's politics were. Ayn Rand was a pretty stark libertarian. Emma Goldman was an anarchist socialist. That's quite a lot of variety to contain. Never mind you and your parents. So what would a society that had all those people in it be like? Nozick's utopianism is to say that you can think of the minimal state as not just something that hovers in the background and is there to pounce when someone treads on your land, takes your chickens. The minimal state is a kind of umbrella state. It's there in the background to provide a basic kind of security within which it's possible to experiment with different ideas of community. So Nozick is willing to say in his utopian section, there is nothing wrong with communism, if you want to have a communist society. And many people will, for good reason. Their idea of the good life might well be to prioritise the communal ownership of property. They may even want to share the communal upbringing of their children. In that anarchist tradition, that 19th century tradition that he harks back to, there is always a utopian strain of ideal communities, which actually might well themselves be socialist communities on the inside, just free from the interference of the state on the outside. So the key thing for Nozick in his utopian vision is that the minimal state allows for a multiplicity of other kinds of political communities to exist within it. The only difference is those communities cannot themselves be states. They cannot be compulsory. Nozick has no problem with communism. What he doesn't like is compulsory communism. What he doesn't like is communism enacted by the state. When that happens, he thinks, you are in the domain of the mafia and the protection racket. But voluntary communism, in which people freely choose to join societies, groups, compounds, towns, counties, who knows, to join associations in which things are shared, that's fine. And the state should protect those people and protect those communities. If there's a communist community, it's not okay for people from the non-communist communities to come in and take their stuff, and the state should protect the communists. But the communists 
cannot take over the state. So the key thing then is that all of these different forms of human community, the one that works for Buddha and the one that works for Frank Sinatra, the one that works for Thomas Jefferson, that might look like a version of America, the one that works for Gandhi, that would look like an idealized version of Gandhi's India. All of these different communities have to be voluntary. It has to be possible to freely join and to freely leave. Compulsory communism, born into it, not allowed to leave it, backed up by the coercive authority of the state, that won't do. But the question that leaves, in my mind anyway, is to what extent in this utopian vision we still are dealing with a minimal state. The original minimal state, the one that exists to make good interferences with people's property, feels to me different from a state that's having to ask itself all the time of all human communities, from families through to farms, through to compounds, through to towns, through to counties, possibly even, through to bigger entities than that. Are people free to leave? Because that kind of state has to look into those communities to try to work out how much coercion is going on. That kind of minimal state could also be an intrusive state. It gets closer, at least, if it's going to be fair, in no six terms, that is, alert to injustice. It's going to be a kind of surveillance state. Nozick has been extraordinarily influential in many ways, widely read still, though he moved away from political philosophy and became a different kind of philosopher. But his first book is still by far his best known book. And his influence is particularly notable in Silicon Valley, where many of the gurus and indeed the billionaires have read Anarchy, State and Utopia. There are three books that have a particular cachet in Silicon Valley. This is a caricature, but there's some truth to it. One is by Ayn Rand, one of the people on Nozick's list. Atlas Shrugged, her nonsense libertarian novel about the triumph of the individual. Another is a book that was published in the same year as Anarchy State Utopia in 1974, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, a book that combines a kind of hippie sensibility with a love of machinery. And that speaks to people in Silicon Valley too. And then Nozick, Anarchy State and Utopia. What do the tech gurus like about this book? There are two ways that answer can go. For some of them, this book explains, justifies, defends, allows their obscene wealth. They are the Wilt Chamberlains, the people who built Google, came up with the idea for Facebook, who turned Amazon from a bookstore into an all-purpose, all-consuming global conglomerate. If you think you're the Wilt Chamberlain of the tech world, of the retail world, of the information world, you may well believe that it's fine for you to have $100 billion. And indeed, no one's allowed to take that money away from you because that would be breaching your rights. If that's what they think, it seems to me it does fall foul of the transparency principle. It's not at all clear to me that I could trace the $5 from your pocket into Jeff Bezos's wealth and be absolutely confident that nothing either coercive or misleading happened along the way. But there's a different kind of argument that also has sway in Silicon Valley, and I think it's a much more attractive one. Nozick's original utopianism, it's a kind of analogue utopianism, and it's utopian because it can't happen. The idea of a minimal state within which there are Scandinavian social democracies and communist or anarchist or libertarian communities 
in which people have decided to come together because of their shared view of religion or of love or of commerce. Artists' colonies combining with colonies of Goldman Sachs executives who've organized their society just the way they want. It's utopian because it could never happen. It's very hard to conceive how it could happen in a 1970s world where people are so tied by geography and infrastructure and the basic requirements of life. But online, in what used to be called cyberspace, maybe it is possible. One of the things that the internet in its earliest form seemed to promise was the creation, the free creation of communities within which people could move and between which people could move freely, uncoerced. You could find your fellow anarchists. You could find your fellow welfareists. You could find your fellow Buddhists. And you could try and build a community with them. It wouldn't be the analog community, but it could be real. Under the umbrella of what? Well, possibly in this utopian vision, under the umbrella of a kind of minimal state, some overarching organizing principle backed up with force where necessary for running the basic infrastructure of the information technology world, the architecture of the internet, within which then all sorts of other forms of politics, creativity, social experimentation, cooperation would be possible. It still feels pretty utopian, And certainly those dreams, those early dreams from the 1970s and 1980s, don't feel quite so real now in the age of Amazon and Google and Facebook and Chinese surveillance and misinformation. But it's still possible to think like that, to think there is a future in which this technology goes back to its original potential and allows genuine social and political experimentation. But if Nozick is the source for that, it's really important to remember, as I think some of his readers forget, maybe particularly in Silicon Valley, that he is not an anarchist, that the anarchy in Anarchy State and Utopia is replaced by the state. Part one gives way to part two. This only happens under the coercive authority of states. It's still needed. This isn't a free-for-all. And if it isn't a free-for-all, it still depends upon one political authority above all others with the power not just to coerce, but to tax and to redistribute, not for Rawlsian fairness, according to Nozick, but to ensure that the system works. When I was talking about Rawls, I said that he got a pop culture reference in the West Wing. That's his fictional home, Bartlett's presidency, where Josh and Toby and others debate the original position as they march from office to office in the West Wing. That's fantasy Rawlsianism. Nozick gets his pop culture name check too, famously in an episode of The Sopranos, where someone who is considering testifying against Tony Soprano is seen reading Anarchy State and Utopia. And when that person discovers that it's Tony Soprano that he would be testifying against, he chooses not to, because he knows what would happen if you go against the mob. I think both of these are slightly unfair. Rawls in the West Wing feeds too easily into the idea that Rawls is a kind of liberal fantasist, that this is a dream of welfareism that's not possible in real America, only fantasy America conjured up by Aaron Sorkin 
Rawls was not a fantasist. Rawls was in many ways a realist. He knew the limits of his political philosophy and he worked quite hard to anchor it back in the world of real politics. He didn't maybe get there, but he certainly worked at it. And Nozick is not an apologist for the mafia. Nozick is not just the political theorist of the protection racket. It's true that the way he writes gives that impression and he is deliberately provocative. One of the joys of his book is it's still pretty shocking. That's why it's worth reading, among other reasons. But he doesn't, in the end, come down on the side of Tony Soprano. I know of someone who watched The West Wing and watched The Sopranos and said of those two series, not only would he rather watch The Sopranos, he would rather be governed by The Sopranos. But I don't think Nozick would rather be governed by the Sopranos. This book is still a defence of the state because knows it begins with the question, why do we have a state? And he thinks that he really does have an answer. For more on Nozick, please visit the History of Ideas page at talkingpoliticspodcast.com or follow the links in our show notes. Next week is the last episode in this series and David will be talking about Judith Shaklar, the philosopher who said avoiding cruelty should be the focus of our politics. A simple idea with profound and far-reaching implications. <laughs>